All right, great. So um, welcome to our extension of the Sutta study um, that I'm calling In This Very Life, which will be the, you know, the study of how the suttas can relate to our current life and also um, you know, kind of the process of working with them in order to, as an ass assistance on our path to awakening. And I wanted to start actually with a little, um, just some comments about an, uh, a topic that's of interest to me. And I also happened to read an article recently. Uh, the article was about a, the phenomenon called deep literacy or deep reading, which is a process by which one engages with a, the, the text, the article said an extended text and it said <clears throat> in such a way as to anticipate the author's direction and meaning and to engage what one already knows in a dialectical process with the text. So that's um, kind of a fancy way of saying that you read something carefully and you immerse yourself in it and connect it with what you already know um, and kind of uh, think as you're reading about what this means to me and reflect on how it matches up or doesn't with what you already know. And in this article, it says that the results of this kind of reading are, among others, it matures our capacity to think. So we become able to think abstractly in a more mature way. It enables posing and responding to difficult questions. It enhances imagination. It refines our capacity for empathy. There's an interesting one. And it yields insight. So really engaging with the text um, can have amazing benefits that go beyond just whatever you're reading, the content of what you're reading. Now, the article applied this, of course, uh, to extended texts that you would have a dialogue with. So like, say, a, um, a fiction novel that's very well written, you know, some piece of literature, or uh, some kind of a um, well-developed uh, nonfiction argument that, you know, that is developed over the course of a book-length text, say. But I'm going to claim that it can be extended to um, engagement with wisdom texts, even very short ones, because they're so dense and so deep. And also that it can be extended to refine not just our thinking mind, our capacity for ordinary thought, um, but also our capacity for spiritual qualities that relate to, um, to wisdom or to comprehension, which are very important, actually, in the Buddhist teachings. We are not just sitting dumbly on the cushion. Ajahn Shah said, if sitting were all that were required, chickens would be enlightened. You know, they sit a lot, <laughs> but um, there's something else going on for us, and so... I'm, I'm, I was very excited by this argument that, um, you know, by this article, that there is something really good to be gained by engaging with texts, even ordinary ones, and, you know, how much more so than ones that point to uh, deep freedom. So that's what we're doing. And it doesn't presuppose any kind of particular level of intelligence or education. It's really, um, especially when you're not engaging the regular abstract mind, um, we're engaging something much more holistic that includes the body, that includes all the cognitive processes that all humans have, regardless of 
what society says about your intelligence or anything else or education level. So I'm delighted to see people here wanting to do this. Um, and I know that uh, not all of you were in the series that I did a, a couple weeks ago. And so I was only able to email people from that series. And I did suggest a certain text. So we, we have a text that we're going to be looking at today. But I don't expect that everyone here has looked at it, because I know not everyone was at that meeting. Um, and it's totally not required. So I wanted to first, um, well, first of all, let me just pause and ask if anyone uh, has any comments or would like to share anything before we look at the text. Okay, well then, I think before we get started, let's also do a few minutes of meditation. So um, why don't we uh, just settle in I won't do very much guidance, but just, you know, just please find a posture that's upright and comfortable. If you're sitting in an unusual chair, you don't usually meditate in, that's okay. We can meditate anywhere. So it's just the process of being with the body and the mind. So please just go ahead and engage in your practice for a few minutes and settle in and with the aim of really being here. Sorry. Okay, so the text that we'll look at is uh, Anguttara Nikaya 547. And just for review, I will go to Sutta Central and um, get there through navigating. Let's see, where is that? It's here. Okay. Um, so this is the site where we often go to find the text. And I'm using it mostly because it's convenient. It does have uh, the whole Pali Canon available, or at least the parts that we have in English. Um, it's not my favorite translation always. And so I also encourage you to use the book if you have that um, and to look at other translations. But for now, this is, um, this is at least something that makes everything accessible. So to get to text you, the, the whole secret is you have to know to go to the menu. <laughs> and I've already done this, so let me get back to the um, beginning. This is what you see when you open the menu. And we are looking at the suttas, and we're looking in particular at the numbered discourses. That's what A-N is. So that's the Anguttara Nikaya, number five. And then we're looking for number 47, and this doesn't look like anything that we recognize. But fortunately, we can remember that almost most of these little divisions are usually about 50 suttas. That's just kind of a rule of thumb. So number 41 through 50 will be here. And then we'll scroll down. This is 41, 42, 43. So if I go a little farther, sure enough, there's 5, 47. Well, and I had asked you to look at the Bhikkhu Bodhi translation, which is that one. So um, hopefully we, all, we are all there. And I thought we would, uh, I don't know if we're even going to get through the whole sutta today. So we'll, because uh, I want to kind of look at each of these sections. 
Um, and then as usual, for our engagement with these texts, um, we're gonna read them out loud because these were really meant to be heard. So would somebody like to read the introductory section and then number one? Okay, Val, yeah, I can't see all of you, so. There, okay, I'll read it. There you are. Yeah, hi. <laughs> okay, uh, wealth. Bhikkhus, there are these five kinds of wealth. What five? The wealth of faith, the wealth of virtuous behavior, the wealth of learning, the wealth of generosity, and the wealth of wisdom. Should I go on? Yeah, please read the first section. And what, bhikkhus, is the wealth of faith? Here, a noble disciple is endowed with faith. He places faith in the enlightenment of the Tagatha, Tagatha, the blessed one is an arahant, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in the true knowledge and conduct, fortunate, knower of the world, unsurpassed trainer of persons to be tamed, teacher of divas and humans, the enlightened one, the blessed one. This is called the wealth of faith. Thank you. Very nice. So this um, passage, so just to begin, he's going to enumerate five kinds of wealth. This is a very typical um, pedagogical technique that the Buddha uses where he'll say there are five of this or three of this or something. And then he'll say, what five, what three? And then he'll list them or explain them or define them. This is a very typical, what's called an analytical teaching. And it's not meant to be something that we um, engage with by memorizing it. Well, we could memorize it, but uh, only in a certain, uh, certain light. But you know, we don't, we're not supposed to just kind of take it in and enumerate it, but we're, we're meant to reflect on it. You know, oh, are there, do these five encompass um, everything that I know about wealth? What does he mean by wealth in these five? We, we don't usually think of, you know, we think of wealth as money or assets or possessions of some kind. And these things are not like that. So already we can engage a little bit. Oh, this is intriguing. The Buddha is defining some other kind of wealth, it seems. And the word that's used there for wealth is dana, D-H-A-N-A, -A, dana. Um, which is literally also used for, you know, when you have a good crop or when you have a lot of gold, you know, so it is the, the standard, just common word for wealth in Pali. Um, so now he's going to say what he means by each of these. And so we start with this wealth of faith, which is um, the word, the Pali word is sata. And as always, I put in the qualification that this word sata is actually more substantial word than we have a single word for in English. And so it could be translated as faith uh, or as confidence or trust or conviction. There are many dimensions to it. None of them really capture what's in, none, Eng no English word really captures what's in that word. So, that's part of the process of, of reading texts is to engage with the particular words and sometimes different translations help 
one to get a sense of what this, this word that he's describing is. So then we have this list. Um, so first it says they're endowed with faith, okay. Um, <clears throat> it says that they place faith in, in what? In the Buddha. Well, you're muted. Oh, Leanne. Uh, they place their faith in the Buddha. Actually, oh, does it say that? Uh, the enlightenment of the Buddha. The enlightenment of the Buddha. How is it different to place faith in the enlightenment of the Buddha compared to placing faith in the Buddha? And this, there's could be many answers to that, but I'm curious how that resonates for you. And like I said, I can only see about a third of you. So you can just unmute and speak if you would like. For me, it's uh, more the faith in the process than in the person. Uh-huh. Yeah, that would be one way of expressing it. Faith in the process instead of the person. What else? The fact that he was uh, enlightened and just a human being means that we have that same potential. Okay, yeah. So recognizing that in potential in ourselves because the Buddha was a human like us and if we have faith that he got enlightened, we could too. Anything else? Okay. Yeah, I think there's all those dimensions are there. I think it's important that he's saying that at some level you have to decide that enlightenment is real. <laughs> you know, you have to decide, yeah, this is something that um, you don't have to, but, you know, this is part of faith is to come to the conviction or the, you know, even if we're not enlightened, we have to have a sense that, um, some kind of sense that that's maybe worth exploring. <laughs> you don't have, it can be a very tentative, just a willingness to consider it. So, yeah, it's this. It's something besides the Buddha himself, though, which is interesting, and and I think significant. So then it goes on, though, and it names a bunch of qualities of the Buddha. <laughs> so, um, but all of them relate not to him as a person or as a supreme being of some kind. Well, they do, but uh, they relate to kind of his particular accomplishment. What does enlightenment mean then? So then there are these, there are nine of them. There are nine qualities named, and these are famous. Um, they translate across the Buddhist traditions. They're chanted, um, and they're also the objects of recollection or reflection in a different sutta. It's encouraged that you actually sit and meditate on these qualities and use them as an inspiration for practice. So I thought we would actually... Um, consider what each of these refers to. They're all just facets of the same thing, so the distinctions get a little fine in some cases, but it's worth um, knowing what these terms refer to. So the Blessed One is an Arahant, so that's, it's not a, that word is not translated, I noticed, that's a Pali word. Um, so apparently, you know, the translator decided not to translate that word, and it's, um, the word is arahang in the text, and it means, uh, literally, the word comes from the verb arahati, 
which is to be worthy. So it is the worthy one. Mm -hmm. um, but what it refers to is, it's understood to refer to one whose mind is completely pure. So there's all the roots of greed, hatred, and delusion have been uprooted. And so an Arahant experiences no mental suffering due to the mind producing unwholesome mind states. That's understood to be what's pointed to. And that's the mark of Arahantship is when you understand that your mind never does that anymore, you, then you can claim to be an Arahant. But if, there, if until it does, you, you don't claim that until you're absolutely sure that those things are gone. So the Buddha was someone who did that. So you imagine, wow, a mind like that, that would be pretty nice, <laughs> pretty nice to inhabit a mind like that. And then perfectly enlightened. Um, so that refers, the, the word there is Sama Sambudo. So that is one who is, it can also be perfectly self-enlightened. So it refers to the fact that the Buddha is complete in wisdom and discovered it all for himself. Um, and, you know, there wasn't a path before that. So, but I, I'm impressed by the complete in wisdom. So anything that the Buddha turns his mind toward, he, has, he can completely understand. He has penetrated everything about how the universe works. Um, he's not uh, confused about anything. He's penetrated the noble truths of suffering completely so that he can never suffer again. And he understands completely the path for getting there. Um, so it's kind of perfect understanding. That's what, and that's what, therefore, enlightenment refers to, is that wisdom, that understanding that we're growing through practice. I could actually put these up. Um, hang on. This might be nice. Yeah? Mm. So, this is the um, poly for that section. Hmm. So then the third, um, vicharana sampano, so accomplished in knowledge and conduct. The text itself says accomplished in true knowledge and conduct. Um, so this means that the, you know, the, the Buddha's understanding is so completely infused through his being that everything he says or does or even thinks is in complete alignment with the truth. So he never has any, he never says one thing and does another. He never says one thing, but is thinking another. Um, something that we observe in ourselves uh, that we do all the time is <laughs> that we're, we're doing something different than what we're thinking. We're, um, you know, saying something, but we don't, we're not being completely honest. You know, we're, we say to do something to our children and then we don't model it ourselves. You know, does anybody have any of these things in their misalignment between mind, speech, and body? So the Buddha doesn't have any of that. It's all just completely free and open and uh, unhindered by any disconnect between those. So to me, this is quite an impressive quality and actually only a, a Buddha or a fully awakened person has that. So we so can be- can can Please. I ask a question? Um, because, I mean, I guess maybe this is just that, you know, I'm not a Buddha yet, not a Wiccan, but um, like, I mean, there's a lot of, 
there's a lot of wisdom or a lot of um, sort of positive effects of practice in, in knowing that something is going on, but okay, I'm not going to like completely like react based on that. Like instead I'm going to like that there is a, there's a disconnect, right? And there's wisdom in navigating that disconnect. Um, sometimes when like what you want to do is like throttle somebody, right? Um, or something, whatever. I mean, not necessarily that. Right. Yeah, that's the path. That's, that means that you're on the path. You're practicing the path. So the Buddha has completed the path and uh, has no more need for practice. He doesn't ever have an impulse arise that is not something he could follow through on. So that's impressive to reflect on. But in the meantime, absolutely, the path is to know which things are going to lead in the direction toward these nine qualities and which don't, <laughs> and to be clear about, um, about that. So partly it's whether or not we're able to align all those things, and partly is whether we want to, <laughs> you know. Um, and if the mind is not completely pure, then we wouldn't want to. We need to still be doing the path of making that discernment. So when I reflect on these, I realize how radical, you know, how radical of a different mind this would be um, to have, have gotten to that point. And yet, you know, there's the path to getting there piece by piece. We do more and more and more of that, and that's the direction it's going. Um, yeah, and I don't, I'm not just sitting here and talking and talking. I love that people have comments or questions about these. Um, but I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to go through these a little bit carefully because these are important. These are class, very classic uh, descriptions of the Buddha or of awakening. So the next word, sugato, um, literally it means well gone. I think the text says fortunate. Yeah, okay. Um, it's described in various ways. He's walked the best path. He has accomplished something amazing. It's a, you know, it's an emotional kind of term. Um, yeah, reflecting that his, uh, his task is extremely well done, well completed, thoroughly completed. Uh, Loka Vidu, knower of the world. Is that what this says? Yeah, it says knower of the world. So um, full comprehension of all aspects of experience. The world there refers to the world of experience. So the six sense bases, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, uh, all of that is completely comprehended uh, by the Buddha. Um, and then the next one, unsurpassed, the text says, unsurpassed trainer of persons to be tamed, uh, Anutaro Purisa Dhammasarati. So um, unsurpassed trainer of those to be tamed or those, I've also seen it translated as those who wish to be trained. Unsurpassed trainer of those who wish to be trained there's actually no word that quite means wish in there. Um, so that's an interpretation of who are those who, who are to be tamed. Um, this one has a couple of interesting dimensions, to me at least. Um, first of all, it doesn't say unsurpassed trainer of everyone. Um, he could potentially, the Buddha can relate to anyone and the texts show that whoever shows up, he meets them and, and helps them. But it doesn't say that he's, it doesn't have a kind of an evangelical bent to it. You know, he's the one who's going to save the whole world. Uh, he's not. He's going to train those who are sort of up, who are there 
uh, present, ready to be trained, which includes us because we're, you know, reading his texts and contemplating, uh, you know, contemplating his teachings. Um, but there is a certain element there that says that you have to kind of want this, or you have to kind of show up and ask to be trained or tamed. You have to kind of be um, ready for that. How does that strike people? I find it a little um, interesting about the unsurpassed trainer also, because there are many people out there even today and in his time that had a past that they were offering that they were training people in, but uh, his is the unsurpassed. That's true. That could compare him to other ascetics of the time, like the leader of the Jains, for example, was um, quite popular. Um, it also, I think, refers to being unsurpassed as a trainer. So within, even within the Buddhist world, like for example, there was a, an interesting text where Sariputta, who's his first, kind of his first disciple, his, his top disciple, number right-hand man, if you will, um, who also was an arhant, you know, was fully awakened. There's a case where Sariputta misread uh, somebody and gave him a meditation object that wasn't perfect for him. And yet he struggled in his practice and eventually came to the Buddha. And the Buddha said, oh, well, you know, Sariputta didn't give you the exact perfect meditation object. Let me give you this other one. So even an arhant who is not a Buddha may not be able to completely give you perfect instruction. It doesn't mean you won't get there. We, well, many people get there without perfect instruction. But... Um, only the Buddha has the ability to see through every other being's mind, and so he can always give the, the instruction that's correct for that person that even an arahant can't do. So I think that dimension is also there. Yeah, Evelyn, Evie. Um, I guess I have two <clears throat> thoughts about this. One is, I mean, the word unsurpassed actually really, even before you said, even before you pointed out, really jumped out at me because it's kind of so judgy and evaluative, and it seems really... Um, kind of at odds with, at least my interpretation of where it lands in me seems at odds with everything else I know about Buddha, the Buddha. Um, and the other thing is about like of those to be tamed or trained, to me it seems like even if people don't know or like aren't intentionally showing up to be trained, right? Or to sit or whatever, that like without being you know, without taking away anybody else's sense of agency, um, if you believe that this stuff is like helpful, that, you know, without making somebody sit down and listen to you or, or, or uh, sit or do anything they don't want to do, that you're kind of always, tra everybody's always training everyone else in a certain way if you're walking the path. And so, I don't know, the whole, that whole one, my editor self wants to strike it. Okay, so this is good. Um, it's great to find things in the text where we where we bump up against it like that. And so you don't have to do this, but if you're interested, it might be interesting to meditate on that and you know bring it up um, <clears throat> and reflect on it through through the meditative process and see if anything else comes out of it. Um, it's and it's and you may never like that phrase i don't know or you may hate it for a long time and then like it 10 years from now or i don't know it's it's 
things change. Um, and it's totally fine to say, wow, that just doesn't work for me, or that evokes all kinds of strange associations. Um, I think it's good. And, you know, the translation isn't perfect. Anutero, utero means the highest, the best, and anutero means no, not higher. There's nothing higher or better than that. So it's a literal translation, unsurpassed. To me, unsurpassed um, feels comforting uh, in that this is the best I could do, and that there, there, is a, there are teachings that are, um, you know, really reliable. Um, yeah, Jean. But all of these subsets refer to what is faith, isn't that correct? They do, yeah. So under that, uh, it sort of makes sense that that's an element of faith. It's an element of faith, that's true. So we find here, you know, different dimensions. We see it's all about faith, you're right. So it's like we're kind of looking at this facet, this facet, you know, these different angles of it. And if we bump up against and say, wow, that one doesn't work, that's fine, <laughs> you know. Maybe another one will, or it'll never, you know. I agree, yeah, these are all kind of referring to faith. They're also all kind of referring to enlightenment, you know, the mm. different qualities of an enlightened one, or particularly a Buddha. Um, so does it apply then to our own experience in finding teachers? It seems like it would. Oh. It does. It can. We would want a teacher who has some of these qualities. If they're not a Buddha, they won't have all of them completely. Um, but yeah, these are then things that we could use in a practical sense uh, to consider about somebody uh, as to whether or not they might be an appropriate teacher for us. So Kim, uh, how much of this could just be uh, taken culturally? So we're in, a, in an era where the teacher is, is the master, and the Buddha studied under a number of these masters himself, and yep. this is just then saying, in this context, he's the best, you know, he's the highest, because it becomes even more difficult to think of it a different way when you get to the next one, teacher of devas. <laughs> teacher of devas and humans, how would you check that? <laughs> yeah. Um, we should also remember, Dan brings in a good dimension, is that these teachings were given in a particular setting uh, in ancient India. I think the, and so we can, we can say, well, how much of them, you know, maybe they had a different understanding of a teacher, which they did, uh, of course. And the, as he said, the Buddha did go and study under some teachers of his time. That was the first thing he did when he left the palace. He didn't just go and sit under the Bodhi tree by himself he checked out the spiritual teachers of his time and was unsatisfied with them. They didn't answer the questions that he had. So then he had to go do it himself. Um, so that is certainly maybe a factor in these. Or were these invented later by his faithful followers and the Buddha never thought about any of these, but they were put together by you know people after the Buddha died who were sad that he was gone. And you know, we don't know. So the cultural, uh, pulling in the cultural dimension is useful to bear in the back of one's mind, is that this could be related to something in Indian culture, because some of the stuff is. And also, uh, we have to be careful, if we, especially if we have a skeptical mind, not to use it to dismiss the parts that we don't like. <laughs> so, uh, and I know you weren't saying that, Dan. I'm just 
going off on what you said, um, it's very easy to get to some part of the text that we don't like very much and say, well, I want to study Buddhism, but this part doesn't work for me. So I'm sure it was some old ancient Indian thing and I can ignore it. <laughs> I think we can kind of hold it both ways. You know, when something like this becomes problematic, there's a, an evaluation for myself. Um, there's an evaluation process. If this is bothering me, I don't have really an answer for it. I can just let it go in the sense that, yes, maybe there's a cultural component. Maybe they're actually really believing this and I should too, but I don't know that. So um, the, the possibility of the cultural thing is not so much um, uh, denying it, but it is saying, I just don't know about this. You know, where did this come from? Did the Buddha actually say this? Did someone else say this? Um, it just keeps it from being an obstacle. Yep. That's very skillful. It's a little bit like the way with mindfulness, we can just be with something, you know, something in the mind or the body that's painful or challenging. Uh, mindfulness just knows that. And we don't try to fix it. We don't try to make it go away. We don't try to justify it. We don't try to cover it over and explain why it's really okay. We just say, nope, there it is. And, and then over time, at least if you've practiced mindfulness for a while, you may have had the experience that just looking at something with that kind, open, honest view, it sort of shifts <laughs> after a while, sometimes in a surprising way. I mean, sometimes it'll shift toward you decide, oh, this is actually fine. Or it shifts and you say, no, this doesn't work. Or it just shifts into some surprising way and you realize, oh, this is something different than I thought it was. And who knows, it can be delightful. Kim? Yeah, Carol. Um, what I like about this quality of faith is the service aspect. It's not like he's just sitting there being awakened. He's um, training others. You've picked out an interesting dimension of this um, in that these actually are something of a sequence. I'm not gonna try to claim that they're, they flow from one to the other. But we start out with qualities that are just of the Buddha. He's, he's perfectly pure in his own mind. And then they go to things about what he knows. So he's complete in wisdom, he's complete in knowledge and conduct, sort of implications of that purity in his own way of being. And then they shift uh, right around full comprehension of all aspects of experience. It then shifts to what he does with that. He trains others, he teaches. Um, and I'll skip over Budo, which is kind of a repeat of Samasam Budo, to Bhagava, blessed. That actually has two dimensions to it. It does mean that, it sort of means that he's blessed, but you're not blessed by yourself. It's actually supposed to encompass that he brings blessing also, is that he, and you can, that sounds a little Christian, so I'll be careful with that, but it's meant to encompass the compassionate qualities, is that he looks out at others and sees, you know, sees the suffering that they're in and responds to that somehow. It's not intended, this word Bhagava. Uh, you know, it's not that he's, it's not quite as complete as the Mahayana tradition then unfolds in terms of the, you know, somebody who's responding to the world as their path. 
Um, it doesn't include that, but it does, it does say that the Buddha doesn't, like you said, Carol, isn't just sitting there, but there is some response um, because of that, and that it's a beneficial response. Because his mind is pure, all of his actions are somehow beneficial, and he actually chooses, as a Buddha, he chooses to use um, his blessedness to bring blessings to the world, to bring benefit to the world. So there's a kind of a shift from inner to outer through the list. Thank you for identifying that. I had um, a question. Uh, the, when I was uh, working with the three refuges with Shiley Catherine, she um, um, kind of instructed me to uh, try reflect on what is the nature of the Buddha and the Sangha and the Dhamma. And so this is a really good list and you had mentioned in the beginning to the, the connect, connecting things. And so I think that it, um, it is something yeah. to connect up with other teachings. I think we are meant to, yeah, and thank you for saying that this connects up. This does connect up with refuge. If you're taking refuge in the Buddha, what is that? <laughs> you know, what are the qualities of a Buddha or the nature? I like the nature of a Buddha. Because I don't think we're supposed to think of this as, there, I mean, I kept saying he has this, he has that, but a Buddha has this. This is the nature of Buddhahood, of awakeness. Um, and, you know, so these would therefore be qualities that are being cultivated. Okay. Any more on this? Okay. Um, so... That may have seemed like it was really detailed, but the point was that partly, I love what the very last thing Leanne said is that it connects into other teachings. So one thing that we start to develop as we read texts is we start to see that almost every word, um, every keyword is linked to that word in other texts. We have to be careful. The Buddha didn't wasn't constructing some complete philosophy. So a word in one text might not literally be the same as a word in another text. Kurt likes going slowly with detail. That's good. Um, but nonetheless, there are meant to be connections between the texts. And so, you know, for example, the first thing I said about this was, oh, this is a stock phrase. It appears in a lot of different places. And it does. You'll see there's a if they had cutting and pasting, they would have loved it at the time because there's a lot of cut and paste in these. Um, and yet they're, yeah, they're arranged in, in important ways. Okay, so shall we go on then to uh, the next kind of wealth? So that would be the wealth of virtuous behavior. Um, would somebody like to read this second section? Okay. Okay. Um, and what is the wealth of virtuous behavior? Here, a noble disciple abstains from the destruction of life, abstains from taking what is not given, abstains from sexual misconduct, abstains from false speech, abstains from liquor, wine, and intoxicants, the basis for heedlessness. This is called the wealth of virtuous behavior. Okay. So this is another set of stock phrases. Of course, does anybody recognize what these are? Yeah. Yeah. These are the five lay precepts that we are given. So I think I'll preface this by saying that uh, a couple years ago, 
um, at least a few of us on this call took a, about a nine month course on, uh, on ethical conduct. <laughs> and so this whole little section could be unfolded quite a lot. Um, and it's very compacted here as to what these refer to and what they imply about how we would live. And um, it's also very Theravadan to have abstinence be the only um, action verb in the, um, you know, in the uh, precepts is that they're all abstentions from doing things. In some ways that sounds negative. A lot, some people say, well, geez, you know, it's all just about restriction. It doesn't, and it also doesn't obligate you to do anything. Aren't you supposed to help your fellow beings? You know, where's that in here? Uh, but I see it a little bit as, um, it's kind of freeing. It's like, if the only thing is that you can't do these five things, then you're, it's okay to do almost anything else, you know, within the, within the realm of non-harm. We have a lot of choices. We're not told that we need to do particular things. It's just, there are certain things that we don't. Um, I think, and this also doesn't have quite enough detail to really unpack what is meant in the more nuanced teachings of what virtuous behavior is. So I'm a little bit loath to, you know, just what we're given here doesn't quite allow us to understand. So maybe that's what I'll say is that just from reading this, I wouldn't base your ethics only on five sentences or on five statements. It's more subtle than that. Um, are there further comments on this? Are these five good? Him, I have a comment. Yeah. Um, in modern Buddhism, I've heard more than one teacher talk about uh, intoxicants used moderately um, as opposed to complete abstinence, which is what this translation says. Um, can you abstinence. comment on that? Yeah, this is an interesting one. It does put a little qualification, the basis for heedlessness. So it explains why we would abstain. Um, so it doesn't say that these things are inherently problematic, um, only that they enable the breaking of the, the previous four. Um, so that's my understanding of it. So one way to read this is um, that we decide for ourselves where on that scale of heedlessness um, some amount of alcohol would take us. Um, it also, in the modern context, you know, it doesn't include drugs. Actually, really, if you look at the poly, it only says various kinds of fermented beverage. They had drugs in ancient India. No culture has ever not had some other kind of um, ways to affect the mind. So, uh, you know, there's questions about, well, does it apply to, you know, THC and other um, substances that we would talk about today? And if we bring in this basis for heedlessness, then that maybe gives us another grounding on which to have discussions about other substances that have been invented. Um, so I would encourage that, and this is beyond what this little paragraph says, that's why I said we shouldn't base our ethics only on these statements, is to use the more universal criteria that's offered in deeper suttas about this, which is, is there harm being done? The point is that we're 
we're not doing harm, is that we're doing things that are skillful, that are advancing our path toward wisdom, toward compassion, toward good relations, all the things that are going to support what? Awakening, all the things that support our awakening. So these things are, um, so we can ask in our own case, um, what is my relationship to intoxicants, liquor, wine, fermented beverages, such that um, unskillfulness will not come about through using them? Does that help a little bit? Yeah. I think for some people, and even in modern times, for some people, the answer is absolutely abstinence. If you have a history of alcoholism or your family does, don't do it. You know, it's, it's not going to be good. It's not going to have any kind of good effect. We also know these things are um, deeply embedded in, in certain folks. They have a stronger tendency toward that kind of behavior, toward becoming addicted and than some people. And so, or there are different contexts, you know, um, in the case of, uh, there may be cases where it would be okay to have one drink in the privacy of one's home without communicating with others, without affecting others, and other cases where, you know, in a public setting, one wouldn't do it because it's poor modeling for children or alcoholics who are there, things like that. So we have to also consider all kinds of other dimensions of that. Kim, um, several years ago, uh, we were driving Ajahn Amaro back to the monastery after he spent a weekend uh, here in Santa Cruz. And um, I, was I, had, I was smoking pot at that time, not a lot, but you know, socially and maybe once a week or something. And uh, so I said to him, you know, what about the fifth precept, you know, what about uh, some people saying moderation and some people not? And I, I didn't directly talk about pot, but I think, you know, he, his take on it was, well, number one, it does say abstinence. It does. You know, like you were, were uh, pointing towards, uh, that uh, there are people who struggle with it, and so you are a model, and also you... We don't just make these choices alone. Right. And then he was talking about how arable land is used to grow grapes, and you can certainly see that in the area we live in and nearby, uh, where it could be producing food for people who are hungry. And so uh, broadening the context of it, it really um, made me, made, and he just suggested that we just continue to contemplate it. And Jill stopped at that point doing anything, uh, alcohol or drugs. I sort of gradually took time to stop smoking pot, which I have now. And um, so anyway, we all have to sort of work with these, which is, I think, the way all the precepts are meant to be. I think so. That's why we had eight months on them. If it was really just abstain and there's no, nothing said beyond that, you wouldn't need to study these and contemplate and reflect and see how they work in your life. And I've always felt that the precepts have been given short shrift when it comes to teaching. I think so. Nobody really goes into them in depth, and I think it's a very deep practice. It is a very deep practice. Um, I had an interesting case where um, I was uh, talking with somebody who I was meeting with him somewhat periodically, who was a longtime practitioner, and I was asking him some questions. And he, um, uh, 
he offered me a glass of wine. Uh, you know, at, uh, we were having supper, and he offered me a glass of wine. And it was very easy for me to say, no, I don't, you know, I don't drink. And he kind of raised an eyebrow, um, and, uh, but I didn't. And so, and it went on. And the third time that we were having a conversation, um, I realized that, you know, I observed myself refusing and observed that it was somewhat a ritualistic thing. I had sort of set, without thinking, I had set a fixed boundary in my mind. I don't ever drink alcohol. Um, and so, and I realized, oh, I'm, I'm, use, I'm obeying a fixed notion. And so I thought about the context, you know, is it appropriate in the particular situation I'm in? Would there be particular harm? And so I decided that I would go ahead and have the glass of wine the third time he asked uh, because it actually supported my practice to realize that I didn't have to obey a fixed uh, ritualistic rule in my mind. And there would be more benefit for me in increasing that flexibility of my mind. Um, at that moment, it was an opportunity to do it in a safe situation. And so I did, and I realized that the, you know, no lightning bolt came out of the sky. I had a history of alcoholism myself or in my family, in which case that would not have been appropriate. But um, it actually, I realized, oh, I had a little bit of stiffness around that, a little rigidity around that, and letting go of that would increase my freedom. Thank you. Yeah. Hi. Uh, Kim. Yeah, Dan. Uh, so what really strikes me as the most interesting aspect of this is the word heedlessness. Exactly. So, um, what happens, of course, when we do use substances is that we, are no, we lose the capability of uh, awareness of our own behavior. Of deciding about the other precepts, yeah. That's right. That's right. So, and, uh, and this can slip away quite easily. So I, I think... <laughs> I've been involved in endless discussions about this. I think we all have, but um, uh, I, my own experience of this is that that is very true. Um, both that when I consider myself and when I consider mm -hmm. others that I'm close to lose behavior, I notice behavior changes. And that's part of the decision that you make when you decide to have a glass of wine or whatever it is, is that um, knowing that this, there's some edges that are going to be encountered here that you may not be able to respond to in a natural way. This so is true. I, I just, you know, I think without being, without saying absolutely, you can never have a glass of wine. It, it is the awareness of the change in behavior, the change in perception, which in this particular case is going to happen afterwards. <laughs> It's going to happen later, and it will happen maybe without us noticing because mindfulness does get interfered with. I support that. Um, and if you really take heedlessness seriously, then you just have to start bringing in other things that make us heedless. You know, what if you don't get enough sleep? What if you take too much caffeine and buzz your mind up uh, so that you're not able to really settle and be careful in your decisions? What, where does heedlessness come from in your life? Then we talk about all of the things that actually we can become um, uh, easily um, can interfere with that heedlessness. Too much internet, too much television, too much all. Too much internet, you know. Then we're turning back to mindfulness, being mindful of what yeah. is in that space where heedlessness is is present. 
So as always, ethics points toward our values. What do we value? If we value awareness and care in our actions, um, we would limit everything that gets in the way of being able to um, act and speak well. It's interesting to take a look at Thich Nhat Hanh's version of that. Which includes the positive side of it. Oh my gosh, it's a huge paragraph. All right. Um, what to abstain from, magazines and so forth. It goes, it's a very long. Ah, okay, yeah, you're referring to the one that gets more specific. Oh yeah. It's, yeah. Quite interesting. So is it, is it more powerful to list a whole paragraph or to have a single statement? Uh, I don't know. We also find that there are some that have a positive side, you know, like they say, I will abstain from destructing life and I will support life or something like that. And it's interesting to contemplate the difference between how those sound uh, to my ear and the, there's a lot more clarity in the abstention. You know, abstain from the destruction of life. It's pretty clear when you're destroying life or when you're not, although there are, of course, even some boundaries there. Whereas, what does it mean to support life exactly? Or what does it mean to be generous exactly? Well, we're going to get a definition of that later in this sutta. So, um, they both have benefits to reflect on the positive virtues as well as the abstaining virtues. Um, but just consider how they feel in the mind, the crispness of them, and also the the breadth of them. So that's also something to reflect on is uh, the, the early teachings never have uh, the positive versions of these. They, they prefer to name specific virtues like later we're going to look at generosity and wisdom in this text, but they don't tend to frame the precepts or ethical behavior as having um, a positive active side, although there are some, some texts that sort of imply that. Yeah, so there's a, a lot to be unfolded. I'm sorry that we're actually out of time for today. Uh, so I will stop and, and ask if there are any final comments, and it's clear that we're going to continue on this sutta next week. And if you're intrigued, by the way, by any of these ideas, feel free to look up other suttas about them. Start digging in what else is said about virtue or faith in other suttas. Where, where else do these terms appear? Do a little thought trail through the suttas, engaging in a dialect, a dialectical understanding of, with what we already know. Hey, Kim. Yeah, Susan. Will you please uh, put the contact information or the um, PayPal information so uh, oh. our able can support you in these teachings? Okay. Little chat box. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. <laughs> so thank you for your engagement with these texts. It's not important that we come to final conclusions and wrap up and tie a neat bow on it. And, um, there's, yeah, this is meant to keep opening us. So we also want to, yeah, and, and make the path be onward leading through our engagement with the text. So I really um, appreciate all of that. Oh, I'll also mention that, um, oh, here, let's, let's end the recording. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.